So today, this was pretty cool because it, it, my church, Austin Mustard Seed, we're on the, on the pastoral team there. We also, uh, just disconnected from what you guys were doing, from any discussions with David, we've been talking about the minor prophets as well. Uh, this, this morning, uh, we went over Obadiah, someone preached over that, but two weeks ago, I had Habakkuk. So all, all that to say, I had that plan, and David said, we want you to preach, we're doing minor prophets, do you want to pick one? And I said, Habakkuk, because I was already doing it once, all right? Um, so the cool thing about Habakkuk is it, it's kind of short, it's just three chapters, but not short enough that I can read the entire thing and keep your attention this, this not morning, evening. Uh, but the good thing is, is that uh, we have the Bible Project. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, but these guys, oh, they're so amazing. There's some Bible scholars, and they pair it with, like, top-notch animation, and they make things that are really uh, complicated very simple. And so here's this video that I want us to watch. It's just, uh, it's a little less than seven minutes long. So it's a little bit long, but it's such an excellent overview of Habakkuk that I wanted to start out um, by watching this today. prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt, they're more violent, they've deified their own military power, they treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future, that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. 
So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. 
And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Okay, so that is a pretty good rundown of the book of Habakkuk. Perhaps more than, than most of us have ever looked at it before. Uh, before we get started, let's pray. Um, I want to know, is there anyone in here who has, maybe you if you're a teacher, but if you have kids that have just started school or about to? Yeah, a few. Me too. I've got a kindergartner going into kindergarten for the first time, my oldest. Uh, I'm more nervous about it than she is. Um, so if we could, let's pray for that and just that uh, God will give us some clarity this evening. God, we love you. Thank you that you're here. Let us be attentive to your presence. You're here. You've always been here. There's no need for us to invite you in, um, but we do need to be attentive to you, so help us with that. God, I pray for all just the things in our hearts, the things that we're carrying as we come in here today that we're uh, worrying about or concerned about. Just for a moment, let us only be attentive to you. God, thank you for our children and um, uh, just the education that's going to happen this year, the friends that are going to be made, the fun that's going to be had, uh, and, and, and the hard times that, that, that are necessary for growth. Um, be with our kids, keep them safe, uh, help us to be good stewards of, of them as they're your children. Lord, we love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Habakkuk. A few things that I want to point out, and then I want to look at just a few themes that this book pointed out uh, that were in the video as well. Uh, one, Habakkuk's original complaint is about his own people. It's about his own people. And so sometimes, as Habakkuk shows us, it is good to be critical of our own people. There is nothing unpatriotic about looking at ways in which our own people have turned away from God. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's wholly appropriate. And what's bad is when we circle the wagons and when we don't be honest about what's going on. So God says to, to, uh, to Habakkuk, I love this part, don't worry, um, Babylon's coming and those guys are ruthless. Don't worry. And Habakkuk says, um, I can think of a few problems with that. Babylon is even worse than we are. How can you use such a terrible people? Habakkuk has a problem with God's using of a violent, wicked people. And we know, like the Hebrew prophets, that God used Assyria to judge Israel, Babylon to judge Assyria, and later Persia to judge Babylon. That comes later. We also know from later history that the Macedonians brought down Persia and in turn Rome over, Maced over the Macedonians. And if you search recent history, you'll find that this goes on and on. That's not even theology. That's just world history. The world powers, they get greedy. They get power hungry. They get money hungry. And it goes around. They do not last forever, no matter what. So God says he'll punish all unjust kingdoms. He says, don't worry, Babylon will have their day as well. And so what, what does this look like? It's, sometimes it can feel kind of problematic for God to use all these terrible people. Um, I will always remember being a sophomore in college and going to my 8 a.m. class, pretty disheveled, just kind of rolled out of bed and got to class. And people in my class were talking about how a plane had just flown through one of the Twin Towers. And that was the first time I heard about 
And in the aftermath of that, those of you who are old enough will remember that there were people who came together in a way that hadn't come together in a long time in the aftermath of that. And I don't mean some shallow way, kind of just let's wave our American flag and you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat and we'll, we'll come together on this. But no, like there were people who had like interpersonal relationship problems, people they hadn't spoken to in their entire lives that, that some things became clear that morning about what was important and what wasn't. And some people came together in a very real, in a very meaningful way. Now, did God say, I'm going to orchestrate it so that 3,000 people die so that some relationships can be fixed? Not at all. Not at all. Be very wary of theology that goes there, that would make God the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. God has no part in that. But because God is so good and God is so infinitely creative that he can turn evil for the most possible good, for the most possible good that can come out of that. And so that is what God is doing. He's using these wicked people. And because we are free agents, we are able to turn against him and we're able to use violence and do things that God doesn't want us to do. We're free agents. We're allowed to do that. And God says, okay, that happened. I will use it for the most good possible. That's how God works. So let's talk about some of the offenses that he brings out. They bring out slave labor in uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Alas, for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity. Verse 13, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people build labor only to feed the flames and nations weary themselves for nothing. And so what that tells me is that we need to be wary pointing to our success and saying, look how God blessed me because I was successful because success can come from some dark places that weren't from God. These people built a town on bloodshed. And two, irresponsible leadership. It's too bad that we can't relate to that today. Irresponsible leadership. So we'll just move on to the third one, which is unjust economic practices the unjust economic practices, charging unfair interest and keeping the poor poor. This is chapter 2, verse 5. This will blow us away if we pay attention to it. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as Sheol. Like death, they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as their own. Wealth is treacherous. This isn't like Paul later on in the Bible is going to say that, that, uh, the, that the love of money is the root of all evil. This isn't saying just the love of money. It's just wealth. Just wealth in and of itself is treacherous. Is treacherous. Y'all, I have to say, I lived most of my life pretending like the Bible and Jesus had nothing to say about money, and they have a lot to say about money. A lot. If you rip out of the Gospels everything that Jesus say, says about money, you don't have much left. You really don't have much left. And, but growing up, even in the kind of streams that I grew up in, we would, we would come to those verses, we would come to where Paul says that the, the love of money is the root of all evil, and we'd say, okay, all right. And I think that I thought for the longest time that, well, I, I'm not uh, wealthy or close to that, so maybe when I have that opportunity, I'll start paying attention to this love of money stuff, you know? But until I get there, that's just not for me. That, that's not for me. 
but smarter people than me that have pointed out that some people who love money the most are the ones that don't have very much. CNN Money did, reported on this, uh, uh, this survey that was taken. They found out that uh, 70%, 70% of millionaires did not consider themselves wealthy. They didn't consider themselves rich. 70% of millionaires did not consider themselves rich. Now, I know the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, but a million dollars, and look, it's easy for us to sit here tonight and talk about those wealthy, terrible millionaires that they don't even see how much they have. But here's the thing, y'all, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Y'all, if you had told me 10 years ago what my family's income was today in 2019, I think I would have said, whoa, I, I, we're doing pretty well. We're pretty comfortable. But ask me that today. How do I feel about that? How much money do I need? I need a little bit more is how I feel about that. I, I need a little bit more is how much money I need. It's not enough. It is never enough, and therein lies the maliciousness around money, is that it is never enough. It will never feel like we are quenched. It will never be enough. Uh, I don't know if some of you came from a similar background as I am, but like, uh, I used to be this way, and my, my parents are, are this way, um, or used to be this way, uh, but we, I grew up in a house that where we didn't drink, we didn't have alcohol in our house, and we didn't believe in drinking alcohol. And now, um, since I've become an adult, I've kind of evolved on that, and my parents have too. Um, but especially my parents, their kind of attitude is uh, not prohibition, but almost, you know? <laughs> Just short of prohibition, you know? Uh, we gotta, and, and the idea is we gotta be on guard, because when people get caught up in alcohol, and alcohol addiction, it's done. It's, it's a slippery slope. We've gotta be so very careful around alcohol. Can I submit that perhaps that needs to be our view of money? That we need to be very, very careful. Very, very careful. We will slip into that. We don't see what we have and it will never be enough. And that's the thing about money is it is malicious. It's not just a hole that we could fall into. It's, I think, as a Christian, there are demonic forces that use money to get our souls to get our souls. Listen, there are people that use money in this country, wealthy people who sit in rooms and they use money to get us to think the things that they want us to think, to have their opinions that they have about guns and about refugees and about war. And they bought our souls because we repeat their talking points. We say it over and over again, we believe it with all of our hearts. And we don't go and find out what Jesus might have to say about that. We have sold our souls and our hearts to others, and they can no longer go to the rightful king. Our souls and our hearts can no longer go to the rightful king because people have bought them. They have bought our opinions. They have bought our souls. Wealth is treacherous. And so, look, when we, when we kind of hold that mindset in our heads, then that changes everything about money. 
Because listen, I, I get it, like life is hard and it really doesn't seem like there's enough to go around. But consider if you own a computer or a car, you're most likely in the wealthiest 3% of the people in the world. In the world. So who are the rich? In the world, but do I live like that? And the money, it wants my soul. And so what's a good idea? What can we do about that? We can be open-handed with it, and we can give it away. Listen, just to be clear, your pastor didn't ask me to speak on this money thing tonight. Uh, but let me say this. But part of the reason why I give to, to organizations, but specifically to my church, is, yeah, like, I, li- I like what it does. It does good things. It does kingdom things. I love that. I'm all about that. But, but on top of all that, I love who it's making me to be. I love the person that it's making me to be when I give my money away. I love the family it makes us. I love to see my, my kids seeing us give away and be open-handed with our money. This is a way to resist. Can I be greedy and can I love money and can money have my soul while I give it to my church? Yeah, I probably can, but it's a lot harder. It is a lot harder for it to have my soul when my, when my uh, outlook is like this instead of like this. Instead of God prying my fingers open to go, no, this, this. It's about the person that God is making me, and it is an ultimate life hack to give away from my church and that turn me into the person that I want to be. And let God turn me into the person that he wants me to be. So uh, the, well, I, I, the, I told you I preached this sermon or one similar to it a few weeks ago at Austin Mustard Seed. It was the night after, um, or was, excuse me, it was the morning after two uh, mass shootings. And so it was a little different. It was kind of a fever dream of a sermon, if I'm honest. Um, I had gone to sleep the night before hearing about this mass shooting, and then I woke up the next morning learning that that wasn't even the most recent mass shooting anymore. The other one had happened while I fell asleep. So a guy from the Dallas area who felt like there was an invasion of immigrants at the border, drove to El Paso and opened fire in this Walmart that were frequented by uh, a bunch of Hispanic folks. In evangelicalism, we've really messed up what the gospel is. Like, we've really got it wrong. Like, I was taught that the gospel was just about, like, arranging the mental furniture in my head, checking off a few beliefs, and if I got, if I got enough of them right, I would get in, and, and we'd just wait till we die, right? But that's, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel, Yes, yes, we, you know, God made a way on the cross, and we can you know, uh, cross now in, into uh, him and get over our sin, but that's only a part of it. That's only a part of the story. The gospel is that God is, is uh, on this mission of reconciliation and redemption in a broken world. And on the cross, that was a, a coronation ceremony. That was a rightful king taking his throne. And, and we just need to live that way. We just need to live like that's true. We just need to live like that's true. 
And so that puts in, because, you know, Habakkuk is all about, like, wanting this new thing to come about. And the good thing is that we're on this side of the cross in the resurrection now. The new thing has come about. The new thing has come about. The the book of Habakkuk ends. Don't worry. Someday it's going to be different. We're on the other side. It's different. We have the cross. We have to believe that God is at work in the world. Look, the folly in the secular activist mind is that I have to do it all. I have to go out and do it all because it's all up to me. But as Christians, we have this belief that no, God is at work in the world. It does require something from me, but God is at work in the world. And I just have to go out and I just have to join him in the things he's already doing. He's already doing, but it does require something from us. It does require our hands and our feet. The gospel is embodied, or it's not the gospel. Again, it's not about arranging the mental furniture in our mind. That's important. But only so far as it, as it enables our hands and our feet. The gospel is embodied, or it's not the gospel at all. So, look, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. Which, Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, we've messed up so much in evangelism because, in evangelicalism because we've made, uh, we, we've made works the opposite of grace. We've made effort the opposite of grace. Dallas Willard said, uh, effort is not the opposite of grace. Earning is the opposite of grace. This is not about earning anything. It's not about earning salvation or God's favor. We could never do that. But effort is required. Effort is required. It's embodied. The gospel is embodied if it's gospel at all. So I want to share some stories with you. Um, sorry, I should have got a slide for this. I'm reading this out of this book that uh, I came across a while back. It's called Reconciling All Things, A Christian Vision for Justice, Peace, and Healing. If anybody wants to see this book afterwards, I'm perfectly willing to share it for you. Um, this beautiful book, but I want to... My fear today is that I would just keep this all kind of vague and we wouldn't really know what to do with it. I want to share some stories and then I want us to uh, think about what this might look like in our actual life. So there's a series of stories. Um, I'm going to read kind of the buildup and then I'm going to circle back around and then read how they resolve, okay? In 1964 in France, two men with mental disabilities woke up in an isolated institution, shut off from a world that had little time for them useless to the economy that determines success for most of us. These men were destined to be little more than the recipients of mental health services. Meanwhile, in the same French town, a formal naval officer and promising young academic named Jean Venier was just finishing his doctoral dissertation. Although to all appearances successful, Venier was lonely. Like the men in the mental institution, he was isolated and unsure whether anyone loved him for who he was. Veneer had no idea that he shared anything in common with men in a mental institution. Nothing had taught him to question society's division between quote-unquote normal people and the disabled. In 1970, John Perkins, an African-American pastor and community organizer who lived on the black side of rural Mendenhall, Mississippi, was nearly beaten to death by white state police officers. The Christianity that Perkins and the police officers shared did nothing to challenge the wall that racism had built between them. Indeed, in the aftermath of a brutal assault, Perkins could only hope that divisions would protect him from further violence. 
In the turmoil of 1970, he had good reason to want nothing to do with white people. In 1974, Billy Neal Moore, an army soldier on, at home on leave in Georgia, tried to rob 77-year-old Fred Stapton in his home. When Stapton heard an intruder, he shot into the darkness. Moore shot back and killed him. When I found out that I had actually killed someone, I couldn't believe it, Moore said. He pled guilty to the murder and was sentenced to death. Stapton's family had lost their father and grandfather. Moore had lost any hope of a future. Literal walls stood around Moore to ensure that he would never meet the people his actions had hurt. United by violence, Moore and his victim's family were divided by a society that could not imagine redemption. In 1990, a, a white South African Anglican priest named Michael Lapsey, chaplain of the African National Congress at the time, opened a letter from forces inside the apartheid government. The bomb inside blew his hands off his hands in an eye, shattering his eardrum. For years, Lapsey had patiently worked for justice in his country, only to be betrayed by white South Africans who considered him a traitor. Lapsey had tried to cross a dividing line and to come face to face with the power of division. He was too idealistic, imagining that South Africa could move beyond apartheid to become a society that embraced white and black as equals. In northern Uganda, where families live in fear inside one of the world's most pressing and least talked about situations of violence, 139 children were abducted from their school by the Lord's Resistance Army in 1996. The children included the 14-year-old daughter of Angelina Atayim, a midwife and nurse. Atayim knew she would never see her daughter again. Thousands of parents before her had bitterly resigned themselves to a brutal reality that could not be changed. She had every reason to be angry, but little room to hope that anything could change. Though not all of us have experienced the large-scale trauma of war or the violence of brutal racism, we all know brokenness and division at some level, whether through divorce, abuse, social injustice, conflict in our community, or right inside our own family. We live together in a broken world, and we do not have to live long to learn that we need healing. We need reconciliation. We know from experience that our world is broken and needs to be fixed. In the small French town where the mentally disabled men and the lonely academic lived, a parish priest offered a bit of pastoral guidance to Jean Venier. Venier asked the priest what he should do with his life. The priest said, invite these two disabled men to live with you. The small act of trust and hospitality birthed the first ARC community. Today, in some 130 art communities throughout the world, thousands of people with disabilities and long-term assistance share daily life in family-like homes within neighborhoods and towns. While the art certainly works to help disabled people reach their full potential in society, Veneer maintains that the heart of their vocation is communion between the disabled and temporarily abled across their mutual isolation as they eat together and transform one another in the process. As John Perkins recovered from the beating that had almost killed him, he had time to think. Lying on that hospital bed, he believed he was done with white people. But God interrupted his thoughts with a vision of an interracial community in the heart of Mississippi. Over the next four decades, defying the refrain that Sunday is America's most segregated hour, the voice of Calvary congregation and community community development organization Perkins planted 
maintained a vibrant interracial life across, inter across economic boundaries. Inspired by this vision, many others started similar beloved communities in America's inner cities, with thousands joining in a movement called the Christian Community Development Association. When Billy Neal Moore was in jail awaiting the trial in which he would be sentenced to death, a minister shared with him the good news that Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive his sins. Moore learned that no one is beyond redemption. From prison, he wrote to his victim's family and asked for their forgiveness. Astoundingly, they immediately wrote back to say that they also were Christians and that they forgave him. Then the family decided to petition the Georgia Parole Board to commute Moore's death sentence. In 1991, Moore was paroled from prison, transformed by the grace of God and his victim's family members. When I was released, they embraced me like a brother, Moore said, of Stapton's family. He has been preaching the gospel of forgiveness to school children and church groups ever since. In the painful aftermath of his near-fatal bomb injuries, Michael Lapsey struggled to find the real hope God offers to people who would rather kill their neighbors than to have to deal with them. Knowing that the future we imagine has everything to do with how we remember the past, Lapsey founded the Institute for the Healing of Memories in South Africa. At this retreat center, thousands of everyday South Africans of all colors, black, background and backgrounds have taken intensive weekend journeys together into healing their wounds of violence and separation. It has become a place where all South Africans can gather to imagine a new future, even as they live in a society unimaginable in 1990. We can never forget the rest of Angelina Adams' story. She refused to be silent when her daughter was abducted. Adam and other mothers of abducted children became the Concerned Parents Association seeking the release of children while advocating a different approach toward their captors. Our message is unconditional forgiveness and reconciliation, she said. We have absolutely forgiven them, and we can turn to a fresh page. We do it for the sake of the children who are alive, she continued. I have waited more than three years, some parents even longer. We are tired of war, and our children need a better life. Of revenge, I would say that we cannot throw petrol on a burning fire. Otherwise, we would be like them. We can say this because we have been at the center of the pain. At the center of the pain, God breaks in to reveal a new creation. Within landscapes of deep brokenness, these five interrupted lives were sustained by particular convictions about God and God's mission of reconciliation in a broken world. Apart from these convictions, their journeys do not make sense in a world where the endless cycle of an eye for an eye and group self-interest is the norm. These five journeys embody a unique vision of reconciliation, somehow received from beyond the normal realm of human actors. So you might hear those stories this evening and say, that's, that's amazing. Those are like big stories, but my life is kind of average, you know? Like I'm just trying to like get to work and get my kids to school and put some food on the table. And, and that's great for them, but I don't really know how it pertains to me. Here's how it pertains to you. There is a world next door that needs you. There's a world next door that needs you, and all of our decisions matter. All of our decisions matter. 
The mark of successful parenting in America is effectively keeping your children from rubbing shoulders from kids who don't look like them. I'll say it again. Good parenting in America is seen as effectively doing what you need to do to keep your kids from rubbing shoulders with kids who don't look like them or are not the same socioeconomic status as them. I see it. We go to neighborhoods with people that look like us so we can go to schools with kids that look like our kids who have the money that we do and don't have the other money. And believe me, it's to the detriment of the other kids. To the detriment. And that is how we live our lives and we call it good parenting in America. That guy that drove from Dallas to El Paso to, to murder about 20 people you know, I bet he had neighbors. I, I bet he had neighbors. I wonder if they ever had him over. I wonder if they ever befriended him. It's Dallas, Texas. They, there were Christians all over the place, I'm sure. All over his apartment complex or his neighborhood or wherever it is. I wonder if anyone ever shared the love of Christ with him. I wonder if anyone ever lovingly challenged the ideology, the racism that was inside of him. And that's hard. I get it. I totally get it. When I have, well, I've, I've situations like that, sometimes with family members, they say something wrong-headed. Maybe it's, it's racist or, or it's just some, somehow they're just rejecting God or whatever it is. We, we have options, right? We have the options. We can either, either flee, meaning we can just ever get out of, the conver- out of the conversation, just go away and stay away from them again. Or, or we can choose aggression. We can choose aggression, you know? We can yell curse words at them and tell them what a terrible person they are. I've done that, doesn't work. And most of us, the reality is that most Christians have no imagination beyond those two options. Have no imagination of what a third option could be. But God is always, always the God of the third option, the third way. So we have the option to engage, to engage, to lovingly ask questions. Well, what, why do you think that's true? Do you really... Do you, now think about that for a second. What makes you think that? Where did you get that idea? Where did, where did you get that idea? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, can I tell you what I think about that? Can I tell you about this person who changed my life forever that's bringing redemption and reconciliation to the world? And this is the thing. We, everybody else, we live in this world where it is a zero-sum game. And to help you out means that I have to give something away that I'm poorer to make you richer, right? But God's economy does not work that way. God's economy says that if I give to you, I'm actually better off than I was before. It's not a zero-sum game in God's economy. I'm actually better off when I give to you. It doesn't mean that we're a doormat. It doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. But that is how God's economy works. So if a refugee comes and I help them and I give them some kind of status that is like normalcy and some safety in their life, it doesn't mean that that's taken away from me. It doesn't mean that. Which, by the way, safety, our other huge, huge idol in this country. So we don't have to flee and we don't have to just use aggression, but we can engage these people. We can engage our neighbors, our family members, those people that we don't like to be around, or maybe we just think we just don't have anything in common with. That is the embodied gospel. That is praising the rightful king on his throne. 
And that is what Habakkuk, that is what God in the book of Habakkuk was pointing to. We are invited into the story. And no one else has that story. Secular activism is great, but it doesn't have the story that we get to invite people into of God's love and reconciliation in the world. Let's pray. God, I just pray right now that you'd be bringing people to our mind. Even as people we don't know, as neighbors we've never met before, you'd bring uh, not guilt, not shame, because that's not from you, but, but conviction. Um, that some of us need to have conversations with people that we have broken relationships with. Some of us need to go across the street or next door. Um, we need to let people around us know that we love them. Let us be your hands and your feet. Let us be the gospel embodied. We pray this in your name. Amen.